Please turn in your passage in your scriptures to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. These are very straightforward. They're fairly simple in many ways, but as I was mentioning to a brother before, as you look at these and you look at what hangs in the balance and what is at stake, uh, it is an amazing thing and there's a lot of gravity to what we're going to look at here in the overall kingdom of God, in the gospel itself. It begins here, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. How a slave treats his master in the first century, and how a worker treats his supervisor in the year 2022, have far greater importance in the eyes of God than most of us have ever imagined. In verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 6, three things are at stake in the workplace of the slave and employee. First of all, the very name of God. The very name of God is at stake. The credibility of the gospel or the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, the health of the body of Christ. Three very important aspects of the kingdom of God. The very name of God, the credibility of the gospel, and the health of the church. The formula for God's glory, the opportunities with the gospel, and healthy relationships within the church is given by Paul here with two very simple, what we would call who, what, and why. Who, what, why commands from Paul to Timothy in the church in Ephesus. If you look at this carefully, you will see these commands have two scenarios. They cover two possible scenarios. The first scenario appears to be a slave who is under the authority of a typical secular, unbelieving master. While the second scenario in verse 2 gives a situation of a slave responding to a master who, like himself, is a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, many of you have been in these situations, have been in both of these. Some of you have had the blessing of being able to work for a Christian supervisor, a man who truly loves God, perhaps a woman who truly loves God. And some of you, most of you probably have been in situations where you worked for people who had no faith, demonstrated no faith at all. So this has some clear application. Now I want you to understand that sometimes the scripture speaks specifically to situations that some of you may not be participating in. Uh, if you're three or four years old or you're in your teens or uh, perhaps if you're retired, some of these things may not click as exactly the same as they will with others. But the scriptures are very alive. They're very practical. And there are principles that I think all of us can draw from in these. And and especially these, this morning, are focused on the slave. And what I would like to propose to you in the year 2022 is the employee. So please look at this carefully and see if we can find what God would have us to see. Paul gives two positive instructions here, doesn't he? And he gives one negative. They are, first of all, do regard your master with full honor. Secondly, do not despise your believing master. And the third one is, but rather do serve him. Then Paul gives reasons. The reasons which Paul exposits for this kind of work behavior, these are what I was speaking about earlier, give tremendous weight to the importance of a slave's conduct as a worker who believes in Christ. 
If a slave or worker follows Paul's instructions, look what he does. These scriptures tell us that he will, first of all, prevent the name of God from being slandered. He will prevent the name of God from being blasphemed. Secondly, if he follows these instructions, he will preserve the integrity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the doctrines, the teachings of God. And thirdly, if he follows these instructions, if you follow these instructions as an employee, you will build the strength of the church. So much happens in a secular work opportunity that affects the kingdom of God. Now evidence of how vital the slave and master issue is can be discerned by seeing how frequently Paul writes about it. It is prominent not only here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, but it is also proclaimed in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 25. In Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. And of course in the book of Philemon, written specifically about a slave and an owner's relationship. And Paul isn't the only one in the New Testament that speaks about this. Peter brings up the same subject in 1 Peter 2, verses 18 through 25, and we'll look at that somewhat as well. Some of you still may be thinking, well, yes, that appears to be true, but what does that have to do with the 21st century free market-based society like we live in? Our culture doesn't even legally allow slavery to continue as part of our system of commerce. And that is a good question. In order to understand what Paul is addressing and how it could possibly have any application to us, we need to get a picture of the landscape of Rome, their culture, and the role of slavery 2,000 years ago. So to do that, let's take a close-up view of the typical first century slave by digging into verse 1. Let's interrupt us with a word of prayer, though. Father, I pray that you will speak. I pray that your word will come to us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would give us understanding. Lord, that you would give us application of this into our own lives. Father, as we look at this, as as I've studied this this week, it, it has gripped me how much is at stake and how much opportunity lies in the workplace and how we conduct ourselves there. You have put it out so clearly here, Lord, with with some of the greatest trophies to be gained by how we live and conduct ourselves. So please teach us, Lord, not just for our welfare, Lord, but so that you would receive great glory and honor and, and many will be brought into your kingdom by how we live and work and conduct ourselves. Father, without you, we gain nothing today. Please lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. Protect the name of God and His gospel at your work. Now who is he speaking to here? He says, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke. Bondservants is the Greek word doulos. It's more accurately translated as slave in most usages in the, in the New Testament. But first of all, understand that this is a much different role than the slaves who suffered in 18th and 19th century America and Western Europe. 
It's a completely different situation. The circumstances for slaves and masters that Paul is speaking to here in 1 Timothy 6 have provisions, protections, and opportunities that no black American slave, man or woman, would have ever dreamed of. First, let's look at the position of a slave. The Ephesian slave is one labeled as under the yoke. This is a typical way to refer to a person who was under another's authority. It does not necessarily convey that the slavery was being, slave was being treated harshly or abusively. But it does point out that slaves were in a position of servitude. As oxen under yoke were pressed to a job with no questions asked, so the human slave was expected to fulfill any and every duty that was assigned to him without hesitation. We get a good picture of this with Jesus when he was speaking with a Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8. A Roman centurion is a seasoned veteran of military conflict. He leads, he is authority over a hundred Roman soldiers. In Matthew chapter 8 verse 5 we read, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. See that it's not just in authority. He is under authority with soldiers under him. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, my doulos, do this, and he does it. That, my friends, is an active demonstration of the slave role Paul is talking about. His master tells him something to do, and he does it. Jesus gives another hypothetical example in Luke chapter 17. Here we read in Luke 17 verse 7. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat, and prepare clothing, and properly clothe yourself, and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. That's what we should say. We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Now, I don't know how you all have responded in workplace situations, but I can think of countless times when I went back to my office or to my place at work with a cloud of self-pity over my head because I felt I was unfairly treated. Or I went back because I felt somebody received credit that I should have received. Or someone was given a new position that I would like to have had. And it is so easy to forget what Jesus has told us here and how we are to serve as slaves, as doulos, towards him, towards each other in the church, and even in this place of work. And that's where Paul is taking us this morning. 
It is not confined simply within the walls or within the home of the church in those days. But this ethic of work is to go out everywhere with us. As for the status of slaves, slaves were very, it was, slavery was a very common position to be in if you were alive at the time of Christ. Several sources cited that the Roman Empire was made up almost of one-third of its population being slaves. One-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. According to Hendrickson, there was somewhat of a societal balance for how slaves were treated. And he writes, on one hand, Roman law did not forbid a master to treat his slaves harshly. They could be condemned to hard labor, chained, severely lashed, and branded upon the forehead, especially if they were considered thieves or runaways. They could even be crucified. However, public opinion often asserts itself as a kind of restraint upon intolerable unfairness and cruelty. So the risk was there, but it wasn't going on all the time because society seemed to have somewhat of a balance. Slaves, in fact, could actually own slaves themselves. And that happened often. Slaves often lived in the same house as their master, ate the same food, at the same table, and became part of the household. Along with living provisions and security, slaves even earned a small wage. While that wage was less than a typical independent day laborer, you would not have wanted to switch places in most cases. With a lower wage, however, when you add the cost for housing, for food, for clothing, and other incidentals covered by the master, that added up to a slave's earning being quite a bit more than the typical day laborer. In fact, he was in a better financial position than his independent comrade out there who worked on his own. So being a slave was not something that we often picture. In the time of Rome, it could have many benefits. Philip Towner reports that slaves received a good deal of freedom and social mobility. Many earned a living or worked in partnership with their owners. Some actually held positions of authority within businesses or administrative posts in lower levels of government. In fact, Philip Ryken compares our time with first century Ephesus saying, just as the relationship between master and slave was the primary economic relationship in the ancient world, so the relationship between boss and employee is the primary economic relationship in the world today. And we should apply the biblical teaching accordingly. So slaves, what were some of their roles? They were teachers. They were artists, they were barbers, butlers, chefs, family physicians. Your family physician may have been one of your slaves. One of your slaves may have been a nurse, they may have been a nanny for your children. Or you may, and I'm saying it for yours, we may have been on the other side of that. Why did one come into slavery? How did that happen? Well, there's several reasons. One of them would have been a prisoner of war. Often, when Israel conquered a nation, they brought others into slavery. We read about the time when, uh, is, when Jerusalem was destroyed and tens of thousands of Jewish men and women were brought into slavery and dispersed around the known world at that time. As a prisoner of war, you could have become a slave. 
It could have been legal punishment for an offense you had committed. You could have come into slavery because of debt repayment. That may have been your way to get out of debt. You could have been kidnapped. And when we look at what happened in early American times, that's what we're talking about, man-stealing, which is forbidden by Scripture. But in some cases, people were kidnapped and sold into slavery. In some cases, children were sold into slavery by their parents. And some people were actually born into slavery. Your parents were slaves, you were born there, you became a slave. But there were protection for slaves. Slaves were afforded some measure of legal protection. Jewish slaves could not be held for more than six years. Exodus chapter 21. They also could voluntarily choose to remain longer. And often that occurred. The circumstances were you had security, you had provision. If you had a good relationship there, why risk it? Stay within this secure situation. If a man came into slavery with a wife and children upon his release, they also would go free. Slaves abused by their masters were given freedom. Exodus chapter 21. And the beating murder of a slave by his master brought punishment. The ESV describes this as someone in the, and it speaks about the Roman slavery. It says, someone in the Roman Empire officially bound under contract to serve his master for seven years. Except for those in Caesar's household in Rome who were contracted for 14 years. When the contract expired, the person was freed, given his wage that had been saved by the master and officially declared a freed man. Now freedom from slavery was not so easy to come by. But it was achieved. It was achieved by those who were able to purchase their own freedom over time. When their contracts ran out. When a master's final will and testament often provided freedom for at least some of his slaves. And in some cases, as I mentioned earlier, if a slave was abused by his master, he could then be freed. So that was the environment of slavery at that time. Yes, there were abuses. There were difficult times. But there were many, many healthy relationships also that seemed to go on, and we see those in Scripture. What was Paul exhorting these slaves to do there in Ephesus? He said, count your own masters worthy of all honor. Count your masters worthy of all honor. Besides the slave, the other person included in this instruction from Paul is the master. And it's the Greek word despotes, absolute ruler. It's where we get our English word despot. And although it came from the Greek despotes, despotes does not have the cruel or abusive implications that we usually use when we call someone a despot. In fact, because despotes speaks of unrestricted authority, it's also used in Scripture for God in Luke chapter 2. Acts chapter 4 and Revelation 6. Despotes is used to represent Christ in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude, chapter, or Jude verse 4. Now regarding their masters, their despotes, slaves were to count them worthy. One commentator says that count or regard refers to an estimate based on objective criteria, not feeling. And this is where we get ourselves into trouble oftentimes. It didn't matter how the slave felt about his master. He is commanded by God through the scriptures 
to intentionally hold his master in a position of all honor or of full respect. Whether he is kind or whether he is harsh, whether he is good or whether he is bad, whether he is a successful man or whether he is a complete failure. Peter gives a similar but more explicit charge in 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 through 20. Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, and please remember the scripture, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So what was the reason now that Paul says that they should show all honor, all respect to their despotes? It is that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. This was and is a very real possibility as a slave or an employee. God's name, the essence of who He is, is of the highest priority to us His followers. Yet it is the specifically God's name, His reputation that will be blasphemed, it will be vilified, it will be defamed, and reviled and spoken of against if believing slaves or employees do not count their master, their supervisor worthy of all honor. Have you thought about that? I'll be honest, I had not thought of that scripture much when I went into the workplace for 20 years at the manufacturing plant. God's name may be blasphemed, Because I do not show my supervisor, my boss, full honor and complete respect. Paul wrote of the same danger of blaspheming the the name of God in Romans chapter 2. He said, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. A fellow by the name of Lenski wrote, If a Christian slave dishonored his master in any way by disobedience, by acting disrespectfully, by speaking shamefully of his master, the worst consequence would not be the beating he would receive, but the curses he would cause his master to hurl at this miserable slave's God, his religion, and the teaching he had embraced. So that is what this new religion teaches its converts. Instead of bringing honor to the true God and the gospel of His high and holy name, as every Christian should be anxious to do, this slave would bring about the very opposite to the devil's delight. End quote. Now Paul's second command is those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. This leads to an exciting opportunity. Not only is God's name honored and the gospel honored by men and women like you that come to work and show honor to their employer, but you have an opportunity to build the body of Christ at work 
if your believer happens, if your boss happens to be a believer. So who is Paul talking about in verse 2? Those who have believing masters. Now Paul wrote something absolutely scandalous in a letter to a church in the city of Galatia. He declared in Galatians chapter 3, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. We read that and that sounds simple. In those days, that would have thrown everybody into a fit. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Drop it. We are one. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. You're the master. And your slave is in church with you. And he, he, he is the one you learned the gospel from. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. And that has nothing to do with the gender dysphoria, the lostness that we have in our culture. There is neither male nor female because we all are made in the image of God. And we have, by the grace of God, through His Son Jesus Christ, become children of God. And men have no higher rank than women. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If that was true, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If that is true, then a radical social transformation is underway. It was not uncommon. It was not uncommon in the early church for many of the first Christians to actually be slaves. And have as much, and in many cases more, spiritual maturity and character than their master who was also a believer. An elder of the church could easily be the servant of one of the newest babes in Christ at church. Especially if the testimony of that elder had been used to bring their master to salvation. So questions, questions in the minds of believing slaves must have cropped up. Unless they were a lot different than you and I. Questions like, if my master is now a born-again brother to me, should he keep me as a slave? Or if we are equals at church, am I still an inferior at my master's home? These would be challenging new roles. So what does Paul say? Well, first of all, what you do is you must not despise your boss. You must not despise your master. Despise literally means to think down. A Christian slave was to continue, to continue without ceasing, intentionally consider the owner of bo- or the boss with all respect. He had to consciously make that effort. It was not reflective of the boss's performance or his kindness or his generosity. He must intentionally not look down on his boss. And you see, it is really not the role that Paul is concerned with here. It is something far more sinister in our minds and in our hearts that we must fight. After the disciples had just displayed flat out pride and self-promotion, and they were thoroughly disgusted with each other, Jesus pulled all of them in close, sort of like a family huddle, guys, Get in here. And this is how it went. 
in verse 42. And that's from Mark chapter 10, verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. And he had just heard it was that way among them. But he says, it is not that way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You see, fulfilling the role of a slave was not new or repulsive to Jesus. That was Him. That's how He came. He took the form of a slave. Philippians chapter 2. And in the special case of having a master who was also a brother in Christ... Such service in the workplace significantly built up the body of Christ. The slave would not despise his brother or master for the reason, because they are brethren. Don't despise them. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. But rather, and here's the positive command, serve them rather than despise. And you know how we have a tendency if we remove something, there's a vacuum and other things get sucked into it. This is saying, do not despise. Instead, place in that, that, that vacuum service, serving your boss. It appears to me that one of the highest priorities of Jesus during his brief life on earth was to flip upside down the pride of mankind and elevate the role of the slave. Would you agree? Often, that is what Jesus is saying. And it turned everybody's minds upside down. We, we didn't see this coming. The Messiah comes and what does He tell us to be? What does He do? He comes as a slave. And that's what we're supposed to be. We want it out of that. John chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin. And began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Please. This was far different. And this is not a criticism. Some of my closest friends have done this in their weddings. But this was not a symbolic thing that Jesus was doing just to show them and perhaps we would do later on in special moments to show our unity. Jesus was lowering himself to the bottom of the ladder to serve as a slave. To serve as a slave to those who had no business being served. He didn't do this because here at the last hour, the disciples had shown themselves to be so faithful. He's saying, I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to put this on and I want to... No! They'd been arguing about who should be first. He knew they would desert Him in a matter of hours. But what does He do? He intentionally elevates them and brings Himself below and pours water. In fact, this week I read that in some cases... 
Even household slaves were not to be humiliated with such a role as foot washing of guests. That's how low this was that Jesus went to. Instead, it was given to the lowest of those employed by the master. Who filled the role of the lowest of the lows? Jesus, the Son of God, the ruler of the universe. The ruler of the universe became the slave of all. And why are we called to serve our boss this way? Because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. If you have a Christian boss, he is not Christ. He is going to fail you and disappoint you. Because he is like you. A man of sin. Fighting against sin. Being sanctified. Don't expect perfection. And when he fails, hold him up with honor and respect, even in those moments. And serve him or her profusely. Pour it out. That the name of God will not be blasphemed, that the gospel will have an open door, and so that the church itself will be built up. Who knows what your service will speak to your Christian boss if you happen to have one. Guthrie wrote, those who are benefited here may refer to the masters or to the slaves. The grammatical construction favors the former, in which case the reference is to the advantage gained by the master in the increase of the slave's goodwill and service. But, he adds, perhaps the ambiguity was intentional to remind both masters and slaves that the benefit which would accrue if both were faithful and beloved, was mutual. And is that not true? As you serve someone, certainly that person has benefited. But I've always found, in those rare moments when I've humbled myself to serve, that I benefit even more than the one whom I served. Zipia.com is an employment and statistic website and gave these snapshots of the American workplace. At least 26% of American employees want to leave their current jobs. Secondly, unhappy employees cost the U.S. at least $550 billion annually. I'm not sure how they measured that, but it's costly. On average, unhappy and dissatisfied employees are 13% less Productive. I hope that, that we don't allow ourselves to fall into that, those categories. And if we do, we jump out of them. But you think about the situation for the slaves in those days. Was it hard? Was it a hard go for slaves? By all means. Harder than I'm sure I can even imagine. And much harder than anything I have ever experienced. But it was an experience certainly known to Christ. And He is our example to follow. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 says this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you. Don't forget that. Leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, 
he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Christ the Son trusted himself to the Father, knowing his judgment would be righteous. And he, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The shepherd and guardian of our souls, we've returned. In the midst of the most unfair, the literally most unfair and falsified scam in all of history, that shepherd and guardian of our souls, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of the living God, took His place on the cross as our servant and Savior. And He died in our place with our sin on His record before the Holy God. A Holy God who showed no mercy on His Son and poured His wrath upon Him so that He would show mercy to us. He is the greatest of humble slaves the world has ever known. If you do not know Him, repent from your sin and your self-independence and come and follow this slave of slaves who is the King of Kings. Paul, I'd like to conclude with Paul's statement here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Only let each person lead life, the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But, and Paul adds this, if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, he, when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Wherever you are in your position at work, whether you're at the top of the ladder or whether you're at the bottom, that does not matter, is what Paul is saying. What matters is your conduct there. Let God continue to work through you in that workplace so that you bring glory to your, His name, whether you are cleaning the floors or you're making decisions about what building will be built next. Wherever you are in between, and whether you rise to some of those positions or whether some of you are brought low in some of those positions, that, in Paul's statement here, makes no difference. It's who are you in those positions? Are you the man or woman of God? Are you an ambassador for Christ? As 2 Corinthians says, as though God himself, God himself were pleading through your lips to men and women to be reconciled to God. Conduct yourselves in a manner there that will not allow blasphemy of his name, that will open the doors for the gospel. I want to leave you with three questions to consider. The first one is, is the way I treat my supervisor causing the name of Jesus Christ to be blasphemed or glorified? 
I'll read this again and just give a few more seconds for you to think. Is the way I treat my supervisor causing the name of Jesus Christ to be blasphemed or honored? Secondly, is my conduct at work opening doors for the gospel or discrediting the gospel or doing nothing for the gospel? There is an old phrase that sometimes is thrown out. Preach the gospel at all times and use words only when necessary. That makes no sense. The gospel itself is good news. It must be spoken. No man, no matter how well you conduct yourselves at your place of work, will never find salvation and be brought into relationship with Jesus Christ unless they understand the words of the gospel given to us in His Scripture. So know the gospel. Be ready to share it. But on the other hand, what perhaps was being intended by that statement is that your life would demonstrate the life of Christ. As James speaks so often, that faith without works is dead. And so is your gospel proclamation if you're late every day to work, if you're the last one to take on a project, all these different things. If you talk about your boss behind his back, and I guess you don't have probably those water coolers like you used to see in the old movies. But there's always places where we do that. Rumors spread. Are you honoring him even in those moments? Are you honoring her at those times when you have reason to slander? The most kind and humble servant lifestyle will never give anyone an inkling of how to enter into the relationship with the Father and into the kingdom. Nonetheless, your work conduct, your work conduct may pave the way for the words of the gospel to be spoken. And a third question. Do I take advantage of my Christian supervisor's responsibility to love me and serve me? Or do I love and serve them all the more to be a blessing to them? Do I take advantage of my Christian supervisor's responsibility that he has as a believer in Christ to love me and serve me? Or do I love and serve them all the more to be a blessing to them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so practical in this letter that you wrote through Paul to Timothy. And I pray, Father, that you will teach us. You will lead us. You will glorify your name, please, Father, through the men and women, young and old in this church, who serve in workplaces or supervise others or who are just beginning or who are advancing quickly or who may have been terminated or demoted. Lord, that through your people, you will bring glory to your name and the gospel will be promoted. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are Savior and that we look forward to eternity with you. In the meantime, please use us in this small assembly to bring glory to your name where you have placed us. In your name we pray, amen.